and I might remind everyone to get their $15 for the uh, fine meal that is going to be prepared for us to Charnel so that they can go ahead and begin to purchase the ingredients for that, especially the meat. So keep that in mind if you would. The last time I spoke two weeks ago, I talked quite a bit about problems extant in the church, uh, difficulties that led to its destruction, and uh, I almost gave you the title for a new series I wanted to begin starting at that time, and I was a, a bit loath to say it uh, because there were things that needed to be said first, and some of those things perhaps need to be continued today, but the title for the series overall is going to be, How Would God Build a Temple? How would he go about it? What would he do? What kind of materials are necessary? And on and on about how God would build something. On the other hand, we have seen the destruction of an end-time temple, Worldwide Church of God, and apparently it did not have what it needed for it to continue to completion and to fulfill the purposes that God had for his end-time temple. Therefore, it was shattered, scattered, destroyed, spewed, whatever word you want to use, splintered, and is gone today. Splinters remain of various sizes. But splinters themselves, by nature, if you've ever had one in your finger or under your fingernail or in your foot, are not in themselves necessarily a good thing. They cause pain and hurt and infection if they get in the wrong place, i.e. under your skin. So, the fact that it is splintered makes it worth very little. A tree whole can be cut into timber that has use. Even smaller pieces can be used for firewood. But when you get down to splintering, which is a term often used to describe the church, there's nothing of any size, or maybe size isn't the exact word to use there, nothing of any value to be of any great use. So, perhaps we need to examine a little further today before we get into God building another and how he will go about it, is at the idea of how not to build a temple. Because if you don't do it right, if you don't get the right ingredients, if you don't assemble them in the proper way and produce something that is pleasing to God, it has nothing but defeat ahead of it. And we are still in the throes of a defeat. We are still scattered and splintered about the earth, and this is not finished even yet. Zechariah 11 talks about, and it's downstream from even the two witnesses being introduced in Zechariah 
well, in Haggai and in the first six chapters of Zechariah. Downstream from that talks about how three big trees are going to be felled, will fall down. The trees can symbolize people. They can symbolize churches in prophecy. And later in that chapter, of course, it talks about how three pastors or shepherds will be cut off in one month. So, that is an event yet to occur. So, this thing is not over even yet. I had a rough week in some ways. I try not to talk about myself much from this perspective behind this stand. But I started coming down with a cold sometime Sunday. And my nose was runny, my head hurt. I didn't feel much good at all. And then I made it home, went to bed. But Monday morning, my wrists were both so sore and painful that I could hardly lift them off the bed. My hands, the wrist would not even support my hands. It took me 20 minutes to get out of bed and get my clothes on. And excruciating pain, actually. I thought, wow, what's this? Am I suddenly getting arthritis? And then that got better, and then it happened again the next night. And then the next day, my ankle hurt so bad, I could hardly get out of bed. And the next day, I had pulled a a muscle in my groin, I don't know, months ago, and it had gotten better and worse. And during the night, that got so bad, of just laying there with the pain, and I couldn't pick my leg up at all. I couldn't even get it high enough to put a slipper on. It hurt so bad. And let's say, oh, then the knee came after that. An old knee injury was so bad yesterday morning that I had trouble getting out of bed again. I couldn't pick my leg up, could hardly turn over, it hurt so bad. And I'm thinking, I knew we would all get old, but is it supposed to come in one week? <laughs> It wasn't what I've heard described as arthritis symptoms. It was not uh, that type of dull ache. I don't know that I've experienced arthritis. Maybe there's one finger a little bit sometimes, but I've not really experienced that. But what people have described was not what I was going through. And I began to think as the week went on, maybe God is trying to tell me that my body is a microcosm of the church. He calls the church a body and all its members and pieces and parts. And if that be the case, the whole body is in trouble. Now, of course, Scripture tells us the whole body, the church, is in in trouble. Uh, I hope my pains are behind me. (laughs) If, If there was a lesson there along those lines to learn, I hope it was drilled in and I'm done with it. Oh, the shoulder's still sore. That was another problem. Uh, I forgot to mention that. These both hurt so bad one morning I couldn't turn over. It's a tough week. But it's been a tough time, hasn't it? Now let's consider this. I know we've talked about it before, but I want to 
go into it and expound it a little more and maybe help us see and comprehend some things that are about to come upon us and maybe understand the why, therefore. Sometimes we can see problems, but if we don't know why, it's hard to find an answer to them. Now, I've said many times and used quite a few scriptures to back it up, that when the two witnesses come on the scene, 90% of the church will reject them and their teachings. We can see in Isaiah 6, last verse, that God talks about He is saving a tenth or a tithe to Himself. We can see in the book of Malachi that God's tithe is very important to Him here at the end time, Malachi being an end time book, and how He is going to stir a remnant of His people in the book of Haggai, and a remnant throughout Scripture is recognized as about 10%. Even tailors have talked about the 10% at the end of a bolt of cloth that maybe is too small to do certain things with, so it goes on the remnant pile, whether it be carpets or cloth or clothing or whatever. You have remnants left over. <clears throat> so God makes it very clear through Scripture that He is saving to the end, a remnant for himself, or a tithe for himself of his people, and that he will use them. Now, that is, I think, fairly easy to prove in the Bible, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because we've gone there many times before and seen that in various scriptures. But I want to ask another question in this light, and that is, why? on earth would they reject them and their teachings? Will they be men of God? Yes, they will. Will they have been sent directly by God to do the work that they have been called to do at that time? Yes, they will have been sent directly from God. Now, we consider ourselves following the way of God, the truth of God. Why do you think 90% of the church is going to reject those two teachers that God sends and go themselves into the tribulation to be tried in the fire and made worthy, hopefully, by the great heat and pressure of the Great Tribulation. Now, the church has already been going through a great spiritual tribulation, have we not? And people are confused and frustrated. Things are upside down and wrong, and nobody seems to have the real answers. So it's perplexing and confusing to the whole church. But when God himself sends an answer for the church, God and Scripture from God have predicted the vast majority of the people of God, the called out ones, will reject those whom he sends. 
I think that it is worth considering why. Just to know that it will happen is insufficient. To understand why might help us avoid being among those who reject. If we don't know the who, what, why, where, when, and how of something, we don't get the whole picture. Now, we recognize, do we not, from Zechariah uh, 4, I believe it's verse 14, that the two sons of oil mentioned there are the same sons of oil mentioned in Revelation 11, about verse 3, 4, 5, wherever it is there. The only two places those two are mentioned in the Bible in that light. So when it says in Revelation 11, these are the anointed ones, the only other reference that is in the Bible to those sons of oil or anointed ones is in Zechariah 4. So the book of Revelation chapter 11, is referring us back to Haggai and Zechariah to give us the story of what those two sent or anointed or set aside ones to do a job are all about. Now in that story, and we've studied it before, so I'm not going to go into it in great detail, those Sermons are in the archives on our website if anyone is new and, and gets lost in what I'm saying here, to go back and get the background. But it becomes very clear when you read Zechariah 3 that God is going to do some signs and wonders from men who are associated with one of those two men. He uses the names Joshua and Zerubbabel, but... Uh, that won't be, of course, the actual names of the individuals, just as uh, God called John the Baptist uh, a fulfillment, at least, in part of Elijah. So they may, they'll have different names, but they'll be fulfilling the office's responsibilities uh, and the job that is given to those to do. Uh, he uses the names of men who were used back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah in the building of the temple there as part of the story. But Haggai and Zechariah are in time books of a, an in-time fulfillment of Ezra and Nehemiah. That we must understand. Even the very end of the book of Haggai talks about how God will make Zerubbabel a signet at the time when he shakes the heavens and the earth. And that has not yet been done. It wasn't done back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it is yet a forthcoming or a future prophecy. And we have a situation now where the church has been blown apart and God is talking in Haggai about rebuilding the temple and people are going to say it is not time. Now even if they're talking about a spiritual temple, most people today in the church of God would say we don't even need to build another spiritual temple because we already have it. Be it embodied today in some group 
that they are in at that time, so they think it has already been, as they put names to it, restored, reconstituted, regenerated, rebuilt, or whatever name they want to say about their group. It's already been done. They're it. So it doesn't need to be done. Or if you talk a physical temple, they'll say, oh, that certainly doesn't need to be done. If there is one, it's going to be the Jews who do it. So most are not in a mood to even recognize the job that God gives the witnesses first. And he tells them to leave out the court of the Gentiles at the beginning of chapter 11 of Revelation and to measure the altar and them that worship there. The altar presided over by the ministry and the people who come there to hear. To see what is what. And then they're instructed in Zechariah 4, Zerubbabel in particular, that he would build the temple and that it would happen, not by might, not by power, not by his own strength, but by Almighty God. And it talks in that chapter about those two men standing on either side of the seven churches, the, seven, the candelabra, and giving oil or understanding, proper teaching, to the church, to all seven, if you will. They will also preside over producing seven in the wilderness, seven trees, Isaiah 41. I forget the verse. 16, I don't remember. But it says seven trees will be planted in the desert and the wilderness. Designates both there. And we have seen we are to leave the cities and go dwell in the wilderness, in the mountains, in the desert, to get away from Babylon as best we can until God makes a total separation for us. So that's where it's going to take place. But they are commissioned, before they ever preach to the world, the rest of the world out there, to go to the church, inspect it, measure it, and teach it what it needs to know at this time in history. And when they teach and preach, 90% of the church will reject their message. How can that be? They'll be keeping the Sabbath. They'll be keeping the holy days. They won't believe Protestant doctrines of heaven and hell. They won't believe in grace only. They'll believe in works. They'll have many of the very same doctrines that we learned many years ago in Worldwide Church of God, won't they? I think so, because those are true. They're correct. But there must be some element in what they teach that is going to put off most of the church. It will be totally unacceptable to them. That is why they will be rejected. They will not like the manner. They will not like the message. They will not like the analysis, nor will they like how the analysis fits them as individual so-called Christians. They will not agree 
with the thinking of those two men that God sends. I hadn't put it in those particular words before. And when you think about that, it ought to hit you like a ton of bricks. How can men straight from God be sent and everything they have to say essentially be rejected? Now, it's been done in the past, has it not? Witness Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, the minor prophets. They have always stoned the prophets, always have. In the very beginning of the book of Zechariah, in chapter 1, the first seven verses or so, give us a warning not to be as our fathers were who stoned the prophets, but be willing to listen and hear and understand. Then it goes on from there through chapter 6 and introduces those who will be the leaders that God sends. So God knows ahead of time that most people will reject what is put before them. Let's go back to Revelation 3 and read a little more here and go over again somewhat what I introduced last time I spoke. He talks about the seven churches here again in the end. And whether you look at them as a nose-to-tail fulfillment through history, which indeed may have occurred, or whether you look upon them as all extant today, which I believe is the case as well, and both may be correct. But all of the attitudes that we find in Revelation 2 and 3 are extant today within the church. And indeed, the book of Revelation was written about the end time as revealed to John from Christ. So, it was a message for the end. It wasn't a message so much about history. So, the greatest fulfillment of everything that we find in this book is at the end time, it being an end time book. So, all these attitudes, good and bad, that we find here are extant today. I think you and I could all read through all seven and find elements of ourselves in all of them, for the good or for the bad, for that matter, if we're honest with ourselves. But the one that is going to be the most prevalent is going to be number seven. God does not talk about spewing the other six out. He mentions things that are bad, certain attitudes that are not good, certain approaches that are not good. Philadelphia, which we all like to claim to be, or everybody has, has nothing obviously negative said about it. So everybody wants to be that, obviously. It does tell that one, too, to overcome to be in the kingdom of God. So obviously there are things wrong with Philadelphians as well. But when you come to Laodicea, you approach an attitude here that everyone 
essentially, who considers himself a Philadelphian, has. When you talk to anyone throughout the church, generally, there may be a few exceptions, but I'm talking in general terms here, who claims to be part of the church of the era of Philadelphia, they will say, the Bible says nothing bad about us. It says nothing about faults or problems. It says if we'll just hold fast to the truth, we'll be protected and we'll be in the kingdom of God. What that literally is saying is God's judgment of us is that there is nothing wrong. We are good people, good Christians, and essentially we have it made. If you stay with this group, whichever it might be proclaiming that, everything will be all right. Now, even those that make that claim recognize that the vast majority of the church is indeed not Philadelphian, but Laodicean. Because they'll say, we're Philadelphia, and all you out there are Laodiceans. Almost without exception, all groups do that. So most of them think most of the church is Laodicean, and they are the only exception. And yet, nearly all of them believe that. So... How can nearly all the church be a Laodicean when nearly everyone says there's nothing wrong with it, with themselves? Herein lies the problem. Herein lies the why and the wherefore of why the church has been scattered in the way that it has. We have taken God for granted. We recognize there is a God who made the heavens and the earth, who made the Garden of Eden, who made mankind. We have accepted that he's the one who made the birds and the flowers and the bees and the deer and the elk and the trees and the grass. We believe in the eternal living God. And yet, we believe in God but deny the power thereof. We do not have faith in his ability to work within human lives and truly experience answers from him. We hope, we wish, but we rarely get the answers we seek. There has to be something wrong for that to be the case. He says throughout the prophecies, that we have not turned to him with all our heart, but feignedly, as Jeremiah puts it, hypocritically, half-heartedly, partially, lip service, but our heart is not in it. It says in one place that we are weak of heart. We want to do good. We know we have the truth, but we don't live up to it. And we despise and fight among ourselves and put each other down. 
and create confusion and frustration instead of loving closeness and a body working together in harmony. Groups fight with groups, people within groups fight with within and among themselves, fight each other and fight the leadership and fight, fight, fight. That's the deplorable condition of the church today. We are not living up to, have not been and were not, the standards which God set for us. That's why we are where we are today. Because of this taking for granted or lukewarm or half-hearted approach, God says He spewed us out. And that has happened to the whole church. Okay, we've been over that. Now here is why. Because you say, this is definitive, this is important. Because you say, I am a Philadelphian, nothing is said bad about me. Uh, we're the only ones doing the work. We're the only ones who are approved of God. The rest of the churches have problems. Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods. Our group is spiritually okay. We're doing the work of God. We are the apple of His eye. We are the ones He is working through. I'm rich. And have need of nothing. And know not that you, in actuality, truly, face reality, you know not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now that is a pretty deplorable spiritual condition to be in and not even know it. Now let's look at it physically for a moment. What if you, as a human being, were wretched. How would you define a human being as wretched? Perhaps a drunk, a druggie, a bum, someone who cannot control self, take care of self, is a mess as a human being. And miserable. We have a nation that is pretty much on that. I just read an article about America being a drugged nation. Both legal and illegal drugs. And it pointed out that there are more people that die every year from prescription legal drugs than do from heroin and cocaine and illegal drugs. And how 70%, or no, 70 million Americans are on at least one prescription drug. 20% are on three or more. We pop pills for almost everything. We are miserable. Our minds are clouded. We're in a miserable state for the most part. One of the most miserable nations on earth. 
according to polls. We thought we were the land of the free and the home of the brave and the happy, well-blessed Americans. No, we're not. It showed in there that people think that they think logically, but they don't because they're drugged. And don't even know it. Have you ever seen a drunk in your life's experience who could barely stand up, barely control any bodily functions or have any coordination whatever, but were so absolutely sharp-minded, witty, incredibly clear in their thinking, and were experts on everything they almost said. Very clever. And barely able to stand. But they have that sense of euphoria sometimes, where they think that they are thinking so very, very clearly, and yet are so muddled that everyone else finds it laughable and or despicable. In other words, they are utterly self-deceived about their actual mental capacities. Now, that's what he's talking about right here. If you're wretched and miserable and poor, don't have much money, broke, let's say, blind, can't see, I mean physically blind, need a seeing eye dog, and naked, don't have any clothes on. Now, if you were physically in all those categories, you would be very aware, wouldn't you? Let's say you're standing in Walmart, and you're the most wretched-looking thing that came in from out of doors, including the wet dog, and you're utterly cold, wet, and miserable. You don't have any money to buy anything warm or filling, you can't see where you're going, and you have absolutely no clothes on, you would be ashamed, embarrassed, frustrated, ready to crawl in a hole. And you would be very, very aware of that condition. So he's not talking about anything physical here. He's talking about spiritual condition that we absolutely cannot see are not aware of, do not realize, cannot comprehend, and are oblivious to. That's where most of the church is today. Thinking they are in spiritual good condition, in good favor with God, it's all you other people that are the problem, but I do not need anything because I'm a Philadelphian. And God says, that if you have that approach and that attitude, you are all these other things, spiritually speaking. Now, is it any wonder that God, who has correct analysis, proper logic and understanding, would not want to build a final temple with people who were comprised of that kind of spiritual quality and had no idea that's what they were. 
How can you use that to build a temple? I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. In other words, when you are that blind to your spirit, true spiritual condition, the only way to resolve that is in the great tribulation and the fiery trials that will be there. That is why 90% of the church is going into the tribulation. It will take that to wake most of us up as to what we truly are. He says, go into the tribulation and be tried in the fire that you may be clothed and find white raiment and the shame of your nakedness do not appear and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now, God does not hate members of the church. He loves us enough that He says, so that you might come to see your true spiritual condition and repent of it. Change it. And put on white raiment and right character. Now, he says in verse 19, As many as I love, <clears throat> I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So what he's saying is, I am going to send most of you into the tribulation because I love you. And I know no other way to wake you up as to your true condition. Now, that's 90% you and I are one of the 10% who are not. Want to lay odds on it? Want to bet on it? Want to say, oh, I think I'm in that 10%, I'll be okay, and take that chance? Is it worth moving on the way you are and taking the chance? that you might be one of the 10% and not one of the 90%? Those are bad odds. Really bad odds. They used to have a system of justice out west where they would put beans in a jar. White beans and black beans. And then you drew a bean. And if you do the wrong bean, you're a has-been. Shot. Annihilated. Now imagine yourself as one of ten beans in a cup. Nine are bad. One is good. And you're to reach into that cup and pull a bean out. And if you get the right bean, you live. One out of ten that's in there. And if you get one of those nine, you're dead. Like those odds? Didn't think so. Will you accept those odds spiritually? Or do we have some zealous repentance to do? I am not here 
to tell you you're okay, that you're Philadelphians, and God has called us out here to do something, and that we're going to be all right. I have never told you that, and I don't think that I ever shall. I am telling you, you were part of the spittle that was spewed, and so was I. And therefore, if we were part of that, and we were, then we must be in the category of those he said he would spew. Therefore, we are what? Say it after me. Wretched, miserable, blind, naked. Are we not? Are we waking up? I hope so. Are we getting zealous and wholehearted? I hope so. I'm not here to browbeat us. I'm not here to put us down. I'm not in the least bit angry. But I want us to face reality, brethren, and I want us to face why we are facing the conditions we are facing and ultimately see the way out of it and be part of the temple that God is going to build because He builds in a certain fashion. And that which does not meet his specs, his standards, he rejects. And he rejected Worldwide Church of God. Was it because it didn't have a lot of truth? No. Was it because it had terribly bad leadership? No. Was it because we began to take God for granted and not be as zealous as we should and begin to delude and deceive ourselves as to our spiritual condition. That is why. In other words, we didn't come up to scratch for what God wanted as an end-time temple to finish His work. So, He destroyed that former temple and is going to build another, this time under the two witnesses. They will be in charge. There will be government. They will control things. Read Malachi 4. One is represented by Moses, the law, the government, primarily. The other is represented as prophet and restorer of all things. So they will be in charge of doctrine and order, as Moses and Elijah were. And that is why God used Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Because they would be end-time men who would do those jobs again. Go against the prophets of Baal, as Elijah did. That will happen. Not before the church is put back together, however. Restore the true laws of God and His ways? Yes got to be done in the church before it ever can be preached to the world and the world finally understand by the time the millennium starts. So these things have to occur. We need each of us to start at home. Now what I am beginning, leading up to here is why do we not get along better than we do? What is the impediment? All of us want to get along better, don't we? We want love. We want kindness. We want gentleness. 
Each of us wants security and to be well thought of. Each of us wants to be an upstanding, proper member of the church community. Each of us wants to be blessed by God. Each of us wants the benefits of his program. We all want to be a body knit together in love and peace and harmony, as 1 Corinthians 12 tells us we should be. And yet, we fall so short of that so often, and we become belittling, gossiping, putting each other down, destroying the unity, speaking negative of one another, ungodly attitudes, ungodly words. Those come from Satan. They don't come from God. And this happens, it seems, in spite of ourselves. We wish we didn't do those things, and we wish, really, above all, that somebody else wouldn't do them. But we want to be what we ought to be. We fall short, and then we accuse each other of being the problem. <laughs> Maybe you're beginning to follow my line of thinking. We are what he, we just read about Laodicea. Let's summarize <clears throat> that description which is very apt and very clear and very true, into one word. Well, a hyphenated word, but still one word. Self-righteous. That's what he's describing here, is self-righteousness. Life is about relationships. Life is about getting along with our family, our mates, our children, our neighbors, our friends, our, our brothers and sisters in the church, employees at work, together. It's all about relationships. And so often we fail or don't succeed to the degree we'd like to within those relationships, and so there are raw feelings and hurt feelings and attitudes and various things among us. Whatever our relationships might be, and the first key to begin to understand this is to analyze self-righteousness. Because how many arguments start or are finished, and it takes at least two to argue, unless you argue with yourself, which we sometimes do, and even that takes two, doesn't it? The spiritual side of me that wants to do right and the normal, natural, carnal side of me that wants to be wrong and we find ourselves arguing our good side to our bad side. So it takes two sides in any argument. But when two people have a disagreement, do we automatically assume that the other person is right and we are wrong? Is that the way we approach any time there is disagreement or discord. I know I'm probably wrong and you are probably right. Not many of us have ever experienced that, have we? Not very often, if ever. Anytime you have two sides, I'm right, you're wrong. And on that side, I'm right, you're wrong. 
And then we proceed to either somehow get the other person to see our way and become right, or use whatever force is necessary to acquire that. We can snub them. We can go away grumbling about them. We can stab them in the presence of others. We can go beat them up or shoot them. We have various ways, whether it's physical, mental, emotional, or verbal abuse of one kind or another. It all begins in our own mind where we assume that we are right and they are wrong. There would be no argument otherwise. Now, will there be disagreements? As long as there are human beings walking the face of the earth, that's guaranteed to be the case. Can't get away from it. People will have varying opinions about various things, even Scripture, I say even, maybe especially would be the better word there. And they will split and divide and fight and accuse one another and belittle one another and put one another down. That is just the way of it. Now, it does not have to be that way. We don't have to fight. We can comprehend that somebody else has a different opinion than ours. We can agree to disagree. Or we might even... <coughs> huh, we might even consider the possibility... Oh, I better not go there. Yeah, we got it. Will we even consider the possibility that we might be wrong? I might be the one that's wrong here. Just because you oppose me doesn't make me wrong. I'm right, you know. It is my opinion. What I've read, what I've studied, what I've observed, what I've experienced has led me to believe what I believe. Therefore, since it's my opinion, it has to be right. Now, why would I have a wrong opinion? Why would I? Well, I wouldn't. I want all my opinions to be right. And since I want them to... I've decided that they are. And since yours disagrees with mine, you have to be wrong. If, you tell, if your experience and what you've read and understood has led you to a different conclusion than mine, then you read the wrong stuff and experienced the wrong things, and you came up with the wrong answer. I don't know how you did it, but somehow you did. Because I came up with the right one. Now, isn't that pretty well the way it is with human beings? The reason we don't get along is, number one, because we are self-righteous. 
we understand, perhaps, and in the church it becomes even worse because we have the way. We have the truth. And sometimes it seems the more I preach the standard in this book, the louder, the longer, the more repetitively I preach this word, the more discord and the more division sometimes it creates rather than bringing harmony and peace and reconciliation. Why? Self-righteousness is the primary reason for that. How does this happen? We hear this standard, this word. Now, all hands here, I think, would agree we want to live up to it. We want that to be correct. We would love to live up to everything that's in this Word. I would, you would. Problem is, we all as human beings fall short of it, don't we? Now, we recognize that we fall short of it, all of us, I think, on some level. And that frustrates us. We'd like for God to think well of us. We'd like for each of us here, all of us, to think well of us or well of me, as we put it in our own words. And we would all like to think well of ourselves, wouldn't we? But so often we don't think well of ourselves. We don't think well of those around us. We realize that every one of us falls short of the standard that this book sets. It's when we react carnally to that that we get ourselves in trouble. And our reactions are all far too often carnal rather than spiritual. They're natural reactions. That's what carnal is. Natural human reaction. We don't want to be put in a bad light by God, by anyone else, or ourselves. So we deceive ourselves about ourselves in thinking... We'd like to think that we're better than we are, so we build ourselves up. We find ways to justify our thinking or our conduct or our words. Well, it's okay if I say this because, or, well, this is really the truth, so I might as well say it. Or however we justify it. Whatever we want to do or allow ourselves to do or not control ourselves, we find a way somehow to live with or justify. Now, God says there'll be no gluttons in the kingdom of God. Now, gluttony can be almost anything. Addiction is another term we might use. You can be a glutton for drink, for food, for alcohol, for drugs, legal or illegal. You can be a glutton for sex. You can be a glutton for wealth. In other words, uncontrolled desire that is not taken care of and is allowed to run free, maybe not by your hands and feet, but by your emotions and your mind even. But we find a way to live with ourselves, it seems. We find a way of reconciling in our minds how we are and what we are in at least a way that we can get by with ourselves. 
witness the fact that we don't change much. Since we don't change much, that means that we may have found a way of living with ourselves as we are. Okay? But we have not found a way of living with everyone else as they are. You can find a way to get along with yourself, lest you blow your brains out. But you can't seem to find a way to get along with somebody else. And part of the self-justification and the self-righteousness of the whole thing is this. We want to feel good by comparison. We know we are not what we ought to be, but God hasn't struck everybody here dead. Therefore, we must not be too bad. We spewed us out, but he hasn't struck us all dead, spiritually maybe. But since we don't live up to this word, we have to find something we live up to that we can stand, accept, live with. And that is each other. I, so many people will preface, you've done it, I've done it. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but we always find a way to get our butt in there. I know I'm not perfect, so we're admitting that we have our wrongs, we're not perfect, but you, on the other hand, are even worse. Comparing ourselves among ourselves, as Paul said, is not wise. In fact, it is unwise. It is foolish. Where is that? Second Corinthians ten twelve? First Corinthians? Comes to mind I might be wrong. Second Corinthians ten twelve, maybe it is. But you've heard it all many times before. Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise. But we do it. We do it daily. We try to justify and make ourselves able to get along with ourselves by putting others down or thinking of them as lesser than ourselves in some form or fashion. And then we can get along with ourselves. Now, on some level, I think we all understand we are far, far, far from being like Emmanuel of Christ or his father. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all know that. So it's not a matter of not entirely at least recognizing that. It's just that we can go along to get along a little bit. If we can make others look worse than ourselves, then we don't have to go to the effort to accept what we truly are and to overcome it. If you're of the Ephesian attitude, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, whatever, it doesn't matter. 
God says, overcome, and I will grant with you to sit in my throne. So he tells us all we have to overcome. But we would prefer, because it's more comfortable and easier, to justify the way we are so that we don't have to overcome. When we come to grips with true reality of what we really are, and we don't like to look at that, I think probably when I was 18, I didn't mind looking in a mirror. Like I spent quite a bit of time looking in a mirror when I was 18 because I was something. Yeah, I was to find pimples too, but, but I also, you know, I was okay. But you know, as time has gone on now, I, I, I kind of slip up on that mirror. I don't like to look at it. It's, it's just, that image gets worse and worse as the decades fly by. I don't like to look at myself as I really am. And on a spiritual level, we do not like to look at ourselves as we really are. Whatever our warts are. Now Christ is telling us here in Revelation 3, just flat out, bluntly, this is what you are. This is why I spewed you out. Now, buy gold tried in the fire and get rid of this situation. Overcome it. Change it. Fix it. Now, thankfully, you and I have been given opportunity to do this ahead of time. We have to put our own feet to the fire, brethren. Now, God has put our feet to the fire to a degree in this tribulation that has come on the church. It's a fire in itself. And we are to come out of this clothed and without shame and no longer blind. Most of the church has not responded. I don't know how much time we have left to get this done. But you and I must come to grips with reality of what we really are, not what our neighbor really is. Talk is cheap about each other. Is that talk sometimes correct? Yeah. Sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it's right in terms of what is actually said. Sometimes the people indeed do have the problem you accuse them of, or did do the thing you accused them of. Sometimes they did not. It was just your estimation, your wrong observation, or your imputing of motives. You know what they were thinking. Well, maybe you do, and maybe you don't. But we have to come to face with reality of what we really are. Coming to face with reality about what somebody else is does us no good whatever. Because you can't change anybody else. You can talk about them. You can accuse them. You can put them down and be negative about them. You can convince yourself what a rapscallion they are and accomplish nothing except convince yourself and whoever is willing to listen to you how somebody is. And that's all you've accomplished. You haven't fixed you, and you haven't fixed them. 
have you? You've just made negative talk that does nobody any good, whatever, and can even separate chief friends, cause people who are friends to be enemies because of your acid tongue. Some of the sweetest, kindest people, people would say, who would not hurt a fly, will sit around and dice into little pieces the character of others. How kind and sweet is that? It is our own desire to create a righteous image of ourselves, a self-rightness or righteousness that in large part causes us to put other people down so that we can look good by comparison. I may not be much, but I'm better than you, is what's behind it. And on some level, as I said, we recognize that we have serious faults, weaknesses, sins of omission or commission, deficiencies of all kinds. So instead of overcoming it, we use others as an excuse of staying that way. We don't look at it that way, maybe, but that's ultimately what it all comes down to, bottom line. If I can at least look better than you, I can live with myself. Maybe if we can better understand why we annihilate, backstab, gossip, and talk negative about one another, we have a chance of overcoming it. But the problem is not the person who is sinning or who has the problem or you think has the problem. The problem is your mind and your mouth. That is the problem. God does not talk that way of his saints. Satan does. He is the accuser of the brethren. Let's understand this, brethren. Let's be brutal. When you speak negative, put down, or assassinate the character of, or accuse anyone of sin... You are in the mind of, the attitude of, Satan the devil. When anyone spews hate, negativity, about anyone else, they have a satanic attitude. They are of their father, the devil. In that case, their father isn't God in heaven. He doesn't think like that. Their father is the devil. Christ told the Pharisees just flat out. That's the way it is. Think about that. Next time you start opening your mouth to belittle somebody, put them down, make them look less than what they ought to be, you have the attitude of Satan himself. And you are the problem, not them. If I do that, I'm the problem, not them.
Do we get that? But we don't think that's the case because we are self-righteous. We can see their problems clearly, but we ignore our own. Or we hide them or deceive ourselves about them or find a way to sweep them under the rug and ignore them rather than face them. Don't face other people's problems. It won't help you. Face your own. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Putting someone down will not help them overcome. It may discourage them. may make them want to quit. doesn't encourage them, inspire them, and strengthen them, that's for sure. But you feel better about it because you got this figured out. And you can continue in your own deception of who you are while you enumerate their sins and faults and problems. And nobody overcomes. Nobody is helped. You're put in a funk because everybody else is bad. They're put in a funk because they hear that they're bad. And nobody overcomes. Now, what good is that? Does nobody any good? We're here to encourage, to strengthen, to help, to support. Does that mean we become absolutely blind to anything anybody says or does? No. But we don't get judgmental about it. See, that's what puts you into the self-righteous category. You start judging them worse than you. How many times does somebody say, well, I know I'm not perfect, but, and then go on in to chew somebody else up, grind them and spit them out. How many times do those people who say that tell you what all their problems are? I may not be perfect, and here's a list of how I'm not. How often do they give you one of those? I'm this, 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 and that too. You don't hear them enumerate their own sins, faults, weaknesses, and so on very much. Maybe in general, but not specifically. But boy, they'll get specific about somebody else's, won't they? Let's think about it. If we're going to solve our problem, what we have right here, of the body not getting along as well as it should. We have to take personal responsibility and be sure we are helping the hand, the foot, the eye, the hair, every other piece of the body feel good, do well, and be in comfort and security. Now, if I sit here and talk to my foot about how bad it is and that it needs punished, and start kicking things with it to punish my foot. That's going to make my whole body feel a whole lot better, isn't it? That didn't right there even. Why do we torture other parts of the body? Why? We've got to stop that. But I've preached about it for years. But we don't seem to do anything about it because we don't take personal responsibility for it. And we're so self-righteous, God can't stand us. 
That's the truth of the matter. Why do I go puke in the toilet? Because I can't stand anymore what's in my stomach. Oh, I don't want to go in there and do that. Oh, I'll lay there. Maybe it won't come. Maybe it won't happen. I don't want to taste that. I don't want to feel that. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to puke. Don't let me puke. I'm going to go puke. God got to the point he had to puke us out. He couldn't build a temple that would withstand us. Now he's going to build another one. And those who in this present fire of tribulation in the church of God put on some spiritual clothing and quit undressing everybody else and garments of righteousness will be used to build the latter temple. The rest will go into the physical fire of tribulation and have to learn there the hard way and pay with torture and their physical lives. Let us take heed today and let us think about self-righteousness very, very deeply because that's what God's describing here and he couldn't stand it. Now, if we understand why we do the things we do to each other, maybe we have a chance to fix it. I'll stop there because I'm out of time.